Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word. Amen. Morning, all. My name is Jeremy. Uh, I'm a pastor in the Renew Polk Network here, and uh, and I really am thankful to be able to to have this opportunity to stand before you and preach, um, and to sit under His Word at the very same time as this Word is coming out of my mouth. Um, a couple of months ago was my eldest son's birthday, right at the beginning of April, and what he wanted for his birthday this year was a brand new pair of vans. You can actually go see that pair of vans right on his feet right now if you look about middle of the way back down under the bottom. Um, And the only van store that's anywhere close by, vans are shoes by the way, Um, and the closest place to go get these things is at the Brandon Mall. Now when I hear Brandon Mall, I did not think what I would actually drive into and experience. You know, malls, like if you think mall, you kind of think Lakeland Mall. And the Lakeland Mall is like boring, nobody's there, like half the stores are closed. But if you've been to the Brandon Mall, it is a totally different experience. It's what malls when I was growing up used to be like. You remember those malls? That was good. So... We, we drive to this mall. There's way more traffic than I expected, so I think something must be going on special this day. It turns out it's just another day. We, we drive in, and the first thing that my children get to experience for the first time is this thing called the food court. <laughs> it's a magical place where there's all of these different options that you can pick from. You can pick you can pick the, the Taiwanese option or the Chick-fil-A option or the pizza option, and you can all sit at the same table and eat them together. I, I took a selfie with my kids and I at this moment to enshrine this and probably put it in their scrapbook. If you've ever been to that mall or any mall, as you walk through, there is just glory hitting you in the face. Right from one degree of glory to another, it just continues to come at you. Right, you you start walking, and the amazing smell of the Cinnabon and the Starbucks meld together in this beautiful cacophony that delights all the senses. The the latest video games pass by you in GameStop. Uh, The the Lego Death Star is in this case that you can only pay two thousand dollars to take it home with you. 
the, the latest iPhone, I don't know, 30 or whatever it is now, is, uh, is at the Apple store. There's from one degree of glory to another, we continue to see all of these amazing things. The top fashion trends from Hollister or PacSun or Macy's or wherever your fashion du jour is. Beautiful person after beautiful person dressed to the nines pass by you. And everything in your senses says, I want it all. (laughs) I want to be that model that I see in the Abercrombie and Fitch window. That's glorious. Right? We know what glory is. At least in some way. Everybody has an idea of when you say that was glorious. We all have a a basic idea of, of what that means. And all this glory makes you want to become more and more like that glory that you see. And so to complete this picture, we go to... Uh, the shoe store, we buy the shoes, and if, if you've ever sat in a shoe store, put on the shoes, and been able to walk out of the store in those shoes, you know what glory feels like. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem with most glory that we get to experience in our daily life, is that it fades, and it fades quick. How long does it take for the glory of a new pair of shoes to fade? The puddle just outside the entrance of the mall. That's where the glory begins to diminish. And as as much as you thought you had it, it then slips between your fingers again. James K.A. Smith, in a a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and then in a bridged version uh, that he wrote called You Are What You Love, you may have heard about that as you've been going through this series on habits already, but if not, I commend it to you. Very shaping in how I think uh, about all things uh, in terms of structuring my days. Uh, He calls this example the liturgy of the mall. And he says, there is a liturgy to everything we do in life. We are constantly seeing things, beholding them for their glory, and then being changed to be more like those things. And this isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, on the face of it, it's just sort of acknowledging that it exists in the world. Right? We know this when, when we go watch a movie and then you, you step outside the movie theater. If you've ever seen, you know, like Fast and the Furious I don't know, whatever, it's probably Fast and the Furious 30. There's like one for every new iPhone. And there's, there's that moment when you step back into your car and all you want to do is peel out of the parking lot. We become what we behold, right? We know this in the same way when we were kids and we looked up to MJ uh, or we looked up to, to the, the latest baseball player to, you know, Big Mac or... Uh, or Barry Bonds, or whoever it was, or, or maybe someone more recently. And then we want to become, we begin to emulate those people. We start to talk like them. We try to, to walk like them. We try to swing like them. More and more, we become what we behold. We're in a, a series right now uh, that is called Habits of Grace. And, and the idea behind this series is that it's just a, it's another way to frame the spiritual disciplines to think about them not only as things that we should do 
but things that we desire to do and that as we do them, they actually begin to shape us. And this morning, if you haven't caught the theme, which is what I love about uh, Presbyterian Reformed worship is that the entire service all speaks the exact same language. So if you haven't caught, the theme this morning is scripture. Uh, and so you've, you've just heard 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 read, and I think, just to say it once more, here's the summary statement of 2 Corinthians 3. You become what you behold. What are you beholding? What are you finding glory in right now? And how is that from one degree to another, very small degrees even, how do you see that changing you? And again, this isn't necessarily positive or negative, but you begin to see based on how you are shaped, can you begin to peel that back and say, what influences are actually shaping me that I may not even be realizing? And how, <clears throat> excuse me, how do I counteract those influences? A dichotomy is drawn here between the fading glory of life without Jesus. Even Bible reading without Jesus is a fading glory. And a dichotomy is drawn between the fading glory of life without Jesus and the freeing glory of beholding God through Christ in every page of Scripture. He's there all the way through. He is the Word. Father, Son, and Spirit, mutually indwelling, always eternally, begotten, not made. Breathing out this Word for us. We did not make this, but it is making us. So these are our two points this morning. Uh, beholding fading glory and then beholding uh, freeing glory. And I believe you can see both of those in your outline there. So let's jump in uh, to the beginning of the passage, verse 12 and 13. You can follow along uh, in the Pew Bibles uh, or in your, uh, in your worship folder if you desire. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We find ourselves, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul is commenting back on this, this little um, window that God gives us into the life of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 2, 32 through 34. Moses is coming off of the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, now for the second time. We'll go into that more again later. And he comes down this time, and they notice something different about him. His face. There's something about his face that's it's almost hard to look at. It's like if you've stared in the sun for too long, and you start to see those blotchy circles. His face is shining. What's going on? You might assume then that he then puts this veil, maybe you've heard of this idea before, that Moses puts this veil over his face. And 
you know, as any cursory reading of scripture might do, you might just go ahead and assume that, okay, the reason he's doing that is because it's like staring at the sun and nobody likes to do that. And so, you know, they hadn't been in sunglasses yet. So he kind of puts the veil down and that allows people to, to listen to him and be able to look at him directly on. Moses comes back down the mountain But the reason that that is debunked not only is the fact that Paul says, no, that's not actually what was going on here. But it's also, if you go back and read Exodus 34, in the chronology of the events, Moses comes down off of the mountain. He's got the two tablets. He broke the first ones, went back up on the mountain, got more, came down. He he then goes and presents those to the people of Israel with face shining bright still. Then places the veil over his face. What's going on? Paul tells us. He says, the reason that the veil went on Moses was not because it hurt other people to look at him, but it was a walking, talking, living analogy of a reality about the old covenant about the Ten Commandments and everything else that God has given us in the pages of the Old Testament. It wasn't good enough. It it wasn't complete. In a sense, just like the face of Moses, eventually it faded. And so all that Moses is doing is enacting this reality. There is something incomplete about the words that I'm telling you, Israel. And we know this to be true. We even know this to be true. It then goes on. We can connect this to Romans 1, where Paul says the very same thing about general revelation, meaning everything that God has made in the world. He says this, Romans 1, 20 through 23, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the problem with the law in and of itself. Here's the problem with the natural world as God has created it. It tells us enough information to know that God is real. It does not give us enough information to say how we can be right before him. And so that's why the veil goes on, because there is a fading glory if that were the end of the story. If the end of the story that God were to give us is thou shalt not. And that was all there was. We would be in a very different predicament than we are today. Amen? And so this glory fades, and every other glory around us fades. Like we just mentioned in the introduction about the liturgy of the mall, creation is glorious from the Grand Canyon to George Clooney. It's glorious. But that glory fades, right? We behold its glory. We behold the glory of, you may have gone on vacation recently. I'm sure you beheld some glory as you did that. But then you had to come back home and you had to go back to work. 
It fades. It's not lasting because it's not made to. There is only one eternal, eternally generating glory that never runs out. We are culpable then, according to Romans 1, according to the Ten Commandments. We are culpable for what we do or what we have not done before him, including even our walking away and our rejection of him. We are culpable for those things. We are given a conscience. We know what we're doing is wrong. We know there are things left undone that we should be doing. And yet that conscience, we are not given in our natural world, we are not given any way to clear it. We've got a problem. So the question maybe to you this morning is what are you beholding? What has captured your attention or your affection? What do you, what do you spend, just very basically, what do you spend all day looking at? Fox News, CNN, the aisles at Home Goods, your to-do list, uh, other people's reactions to your jokes or to your statements like I'm doing right now. Uh, maybe the man or the woman a couple desks down from you or on the computer screen late at night. What are you beholding? What glory are you beholding? What are you taking in? And how is that little by little, moment by moment, piece by piece, shaping who you are? Everything that has our attention is shaping us in small and subtle ways over the course of time. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Right, and since we're talking about the spiritual discipline of Scripture reading, I think a, a, a note on that that the passage actually gives would be uh, really helpful right now. If you only look to the Bible for a list of things to do or to not do in order to get into heaven, you have seen a fading glory. If you've ever read the beginning of the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says the Bible's not all about rules. It's actually about a king who's on a rescue mission, who's coming back to a lost and lonely and broken people who on their own could not get to him, so he has come to them. This was me. This was me for many years. I grew up going to a YMCA camp before I really understood the good news of Jesus. And I could list off, we had, we had lists we had to memorize of the attributes of God. I was singing, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, our God is an awesome God. And yet, I didn't really know the God that I was singing and teaching cabin devotions about. I knew some I knew aspects. I knew vaguely that he was there and real. I knew that I had some sort of wrong within me and that somehow he was going to deal with that. But I really had no idea until I got to college and made a lot of reasons to feel really guilty. And I didn't think God had anything to say to that except you should be. But is that the end of the story? Is that the only thing that God has to say. It wasn't until I was sitting at the front row uh, in a, a Wesley College Ministry gathering that I, for the first time, heard the good news of Jesus. 
And these words like forgiveness and grace and love began to, I mean, literally it felt like a warm blanket being draped over my shoulders. And in that moment, I was hearing the connection between God's great holiness and my great brokenness. Then I understood. How about you? What are you beholding? Are you beholding him? Are you beholding some, some sort of counterfeit version of him to make him a little bit more uh, easy for you to relate to? Or are you beholding the great and glorious God that we have from the beginning of this worship service been adoring? And also very much coming to the conclusion that we don't have a candle as we stand before him. Because we not only behold the fading glory of things in this world and of partial versions of the God that you may have constructed in your own head, but we can, in the full pages of Scripture, behold the God who is. Always has been, always will be. Verse 14, but their minds, and ours as well, were hardened. For to, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. How's it taken away? But only through Christ is it taken away. Right? The Ten Commandments do a great ministry for us. Verse 9, if you were to back up a little bit, if you've got your Bible open, you can see just a few verses before that, they do a great ministry. It's called the ministry of condemnation. Right? They do a great job at saying, these are ten ways that you're awful. Congratulations. That's not the only thing they do. Don't quote me on that. There's more good things about the law. I'm just trying to hone in on a specific point. But according to the text, it is the ministry of condemnation. And you've got to have that. If we have a God that does not have a ministry of condemnation, then he has, he's not holy. He's not a good judge. He just kind of sweeps things under the rug. But that's not the God who is. Because we have heard the bad news in this ministry of condemnation. We have seen all the ways that we fall short of the glory of God. Our consciences testify to that. Any place you open to in scripture that has any kind of command attached to it reveals that about our hearts. This is not hard to find if you are willing to go there and be honest about yourself. You have to have the bad news before a little bit later on, verse 10, you have the ministry of righteousness. You have to have the all have fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God before you have and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have to have the bad news before you get the good news for the good news to have any kind of a punch. And so it is then only in beholding Jesus that we can begin to be more and more changed into his image and not whatever else it is that we may be beholding, right? And maybe, you know, it's easy to talk about Jesus like some sort of concept, like some sort of stained glass window that you sort of look at and venerate every once in a while and go about your day. But Let's think about him as a person, as he was and is. Fully God yet, 
fully man. And as a person, as our elder brother, as scripture speaks of him as, we can, everybody looks up to their older brother. Everybody wants to be like their older brother. I'm an only child, but now I have an older brother. And I can look up to him. Right? We, we look up to our older brothers who are wise. How about a man who navigated his whole life without ever one sin or failure? We love to behold an elder brother who is self-sacrificial about others. How about one who has left heaven and come to earth to die for a people who didn't even want to give him the time of day? We love beholding rich people. How about one who had all the riches of heaven and spent them on you? This is our older brother. This is one that you can look up to. And as you look up to him, you then become more and more conformed to him. Have you ever just, the POJ study, the person of Jesus study, if you haven't done it, do it. I know many of you have been exposed to that. Watch Jesus walk around and watch how he lives. He is admirable and commendable and beautiful and wise and holy and amazing at every turn and every moment. We can't make it through the ride home without yelling at somebody. He's amazing. Are you looking up to him? As your older brother, do you cherish him? Do you adore him? Do you spend time with him? Do you, do you meet him? And how do you meet him? Everything we need for life and salvation is in the pages of scripture. And so looking up to our older brother, every day we can find something new to be amazed by. Verse 17 then, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. In my own story, part of the experience, everybody wants an experience of God. I think this gives us at least one experience subjectively that you can have as you begin to see God for who he is in all his glory and in all his grace. You behold him and you see freedom. And you not only see it, but you experience it. I was, I was sitting in my car in college. I was sort of in this in-between period of I, I felt really guilty, but I didn't have enough information yet to be totally settled about who God was and how I was made right with him and all those things. And I was sitting in my truck one day and I had a, I had a the who phase. Anybody have a who phase? You even know who that is? It's a band from the 70s. They're great. Um, and they have this song where Roger Daltrey, the lead singer, just keeps screaming, I'm free! And I have a tangible, subjective experience of shaking my head and saying, I'm not. I don't feel that. And I vowed, literally, as weird as this is, to not listen to that song anymore until I knew where to find freedom. And it was in that same semester that Jesus found me. Have you found that freedom? Have you, have you subjectively experienced that freedom that comes from knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus? Have you experienced that kind of freedom? Because he has that for you. As you behold him, that is one of many experiences that you may have. That's why Tim Keller, you may have heard this uh, statement before, says that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to Z. 
There's nothing about our earthly experience of life or even our heavenly experience of life that does not include at its very center the good news of Jesus in his person and in his work. He's everything. A to Z. Every experience that you have in your day can in some way be attached to this good news. And to me, this is why I brought this up as a prop. It really is true. Every Sunday school teacher who has ever said the right answer is always Jesus is right. (laughs) And that's why this book right here, the CBR Journal, is so helpful. Because it does not just walk you straight from law to re-upping your promise to uphold it. There's four steps And it begins with adoring the God who is, seeing him in his holiness, listening to his commandments. But then it jumps to confession, like you've walked through in this service. You you can do that every day. It it goes to confession, showing inside yourself all of the ways, being honest with yourself and before the Lord about all the ways that you fall short of that. But it doesn't leave you in the bad news. It then jumps to thanksgiving, particularly the past, present, and future benefits that are yours in union with Christ. Every day you have an opportunity to run through that gamut. Every day you have the opportunity to run through those four boxes. And then you get to finish out with, God help, that supplication box, God help. I need you to be more conformed to this glory that I see, but that I fall so far short of, but that I see Jesus has done so much freeing me. It's the difference between David was defeated by Goliath, or David defeated Goliath by his bravery, so I should go be brave. You've missed a couple of steps in there. That's a fading glory. How about this instead? Uh, David was brave because he trusted God. This morning... I am finding ways in of myself. I am not trusting God. I am not brave, therefore, because I am not trusting God. Jesus, though, who trusted God even in the face of impending death and not only death but full separation from the Father who he has always known and loved and been in perfect communion with and was brave, even sweating drops of blood, but brave to follow through with what his father's role for him was. And so then please, Jesus, help me to trust you by that same spirit that was in Jesus being in me. Help me to trust you that I can move out in whatever Goliath may be in front of me bravely. Do you see the difference in those two approaches to reading scripture? And you can do that in every passage. That's beholding. Christ. And then as you do, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So let me ask you two questions. The first is, how do we grow as Christians? Or perhaps if you're here this morning and and you're still investigating the claims of of Jesus, how should we think about growth? Is it nitty-gritty, skin of our teeth, 
gritting our fingernails deeply into our palms, trying to do the best we can? Or is there more to it than that? Let me ask a second question. Why do we grow as Christians? Because, again, another Sunday school answer. They might be answering this right now. How do you grow as a Christian? Well, what I'm supposed to, what Drew said, I had to stand up here this morning and say is, read your Bible. Amen. How, though, if you're looking for more reason to read your Bible, how does reading your Bible actually impact you? Should you wait until you want to read your Bible to read it? I would say no. Because if you become what you behold, you have to behold it before you become it. And so beholding Christ in every page of Scripture goes first. You changing comes second. So do you have a habit right now of beholding him? Where do you find other things that are competing in your mind and in your heart for his glory? How could you even right now repent of those things, putting them aside, turning away, and committing again, listening both to his great love for you in Christ and to his great command to leave everything and follow him? So let me... um, let me close with an example. Uh, something that has been immensely painful in my life over the past few months, and you may or may not be aware of this, um, but we just a month ago closed Good Shepherd Church, which was a, a church plant in this network. And it's been a very difficult month. May 23rd was our last service, so we're, we're you know, just a little over a month now. And it was painful for, for me and for all of our people, for sure. What I was tempted and am tempted today to behold is all the wreckage of that. All the hurt, all the sadness, all the loss. But if I stay there, if, if we stay there, then what do we become? Wrecked. Is there something more for us to behold? I was, I was searching. It hasn't been, it's been an up and down month, to be honest. And somewhere in the middle of it, I was recognizing that I was kind of wandering and feeling sort of lost. And I thought, I've got to find something in scripture to kind of help me grasp where am I right now? And where I found myself was in the book of Haggai. Uh, and funny enough, when Jeff was praying about King Cyrus, who allowed uh, the, the Israelites to come back from exile in Babylon, that's what the book of Haggai is about, right? The, the nation of Israel has been totally decimated. All they see in front of them is wreckage. They're slaves in a foreign land. And then through a, uh, a wonderful set of circumstances, but one that they're still not exactly sure that they're excited about, God says, go back. And not only go back, build the temple again. And they kind of waffle and they waver and they're like, ah, there's a lot of hard work to do. And I don't know, that seems kind of hard. And the book of Haggai is one promise after another. I will be faithful to you. Turn back to me and then get after it. And the, 
it really caught me at the very end, Haggai 2, 21 and 22, when I saw this. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, the Lord says, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, who is the governor of the area, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. And that image of the signet ring stuck in my head. You know what a signet ring is? A king sends a message to a foreign land and so that you know that it was actually coming from his pen and his hand and his office and not somebody else's, he takes a dollop of, of hot wax and places it on the seal and then presses his ring with the kingly seal right down into it. So you know this is verified. And then he says, and that's who you are, Zerubbabel. And by virtue of applying that to myself, that's who you are, Jeremy. That's who you are, Redeemer City. All who have trusted in Christ, he says, I have chosen you. You are my signet ring. You are my stamp of approval. Even to go back even earlier into 2 Corinthians 3, you are my letter. There's a purpose, even in your pain. So don't just behold the pain. Yes, look at it. But then look through it to see who is the God who is over that, who is sovereign over that, and who says, I have chosen you even in it. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know how you are, you are wondering and wandering for glory. But wherever it is, whatever that piece of your heart is that needs to be satisfied, can and will be in the pages of scripture through the glory of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit changing you from one degree of glory to another. Seek him and find him. Let's pray. So Father, thank you that you're this real, that you're this good, that you're this close to us. Uh, we pray now that you would meet us not only in word, but in word acted out and ingested in by the sacrament of Lord's Supper. We pray in Christ. Amen. And since his word is truth and we live by it, he has the first word and the call to worship and he also has the last. And so hear and receive this good word from the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of of God the Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Go in peace. Four, two.